everyone. Welcome to the Instantly Reliable podcast. Uh, today is a day that uh, we've been looking forward to for quite some time. We have with us today Manoj Sebastian, uh, one of the foremost SRE leaders uh, in India. Um, having worked in reliability engineering across many large uh, and I'd say uh, uh, high-scale companies like uh, like Yahoo, Talisma, Amazon, Flipkart, Intuit, Atlassian and then most recently he was director of uh, reliability and production engineering at uh, Flipkart. Uh, Manoj, nice to have you here. Thank you, Vishwa. Uh, thanks for having me here. Um, incidentally, reliable is a nice uh, uh, way to start a podcast for reliability. Uh, uh, can I ask you why uh, this name, uh, Incidentally Reliable? I think uh, our focus is more on the people that we that we have. Uh, just talking about site reliability and people who happen to be reliable. They, they may have other aspects to, to, the, to, the, to, the, to their personality, but the most important aspect of them as, as individuals is that they happen to be reliable people. And, and therefore we thought, uh, and of course being in the business of incident management, there had to be incident somewhere in the title. So you happen to be instantly reliable. <laughs> yeah, that, that's very interesting because um, uh, if I look back my career, um, it's again incidentally reliable. I, uh, it, it took almost an year for me to uh, really uh, figure out the true, uh, the, the true potential or the true thing I, I want to chase. Um, I began my career as a test engineer back in 97 for Adobe Technologies when the rest of the world was doing Y2K mm. as one of, the, uh, one of the first product companies in India. And uh, as a tester, back then now Google, um, we, we released our first version of the product. It was an email-based CRM product. And we had our first set of customers in Kormangala, I think. This was, this was Adobe Technologies. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. So it, you know, Adobe still, uh, we haven't really made uh, the company called Talisma. Mm. So the version one of the product was still uh, from Adobe Technologies, and we used to probably say made in India. Yeah. And, and uh, the version one was uh, <coughs> sold in India to mostly startups, yeah. and some of the banks were new to managing their email-based uh, uh, customer interactions. And uh, I happened to be one of the first uh, support engineers uh, for the product. Uh, that was a time I kind of realized that uh, uh, as a tester, there is there are things beyond um, the functional attributes of a product mm-hmm. which really makes or breaks the product. Yeah. I, actually, before we move into that, would love to understand. You worked in a lot of really large companies. How did you choose these companies? Why would why did you join these specific companies? You see, I didn't really join these companies to be fine. Uh, you see, my first job in t- at uh, Adudi Talisma was uh, by chance. Uh, it was a time when I was also waiting to uh, join the Y2K bandwagon. Okay. And uh, I was uh, uh, I was I was kind of waiting for a call from Infosys. Ah. And and that didn't happen. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I learned AS400 uh, programming. Uh, I don't know how many of you had this AS400, but uh, that that was one of the IBM mainframe. Uh, we used to write programs in COBOL and uh, right. uh, all that. And Y2K uh, was mostly, uh, you know, infamous for those uh, programming languages. Yep. <clears throat> and when I was waiting, 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 uh, got this interesting call from a company called Adudi saying they were building a product in um, Bangalore. It's uh, built on Microsoft technologies. And until then, I was using only score units. Mm. And it was interesting to so, uh, join the company as a trust engineer. Of course, they were paying me well. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think that was a big turning point. Uh, there was a company full of uh, uh, IITNs and the first product um, uh, company in Bangalore. And I had a lot of mentors from Microsoft those days. Interesting. Okay. The, the product team, uh, the engineering minds all were um, you know, coming from the Microsoft way of uh, building products. So we kind of got into that uh, rhythm from the very beginning. And we built an amazing uh, in a product, and uh, it was the waterfall days, hmm. and there was part of a lot of these uh, um, discussions uh, which goes till midnight, uh, where uh, we discuss about functionalities, UXs, 
um, doing some of the um, performance tests and see how the DB is breaking, uh, where it is scaling. Was building product more exciting then versus now? Just like in our uh, life, you do something and you lose uh, fun of it, right? Mm. So you need the next set of challenges. Okay. Right. <clears throat> it's a simple desktop-based product. We, 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 had, uh, we had this product which is very simple to install, right? You could just take a CD and go to the customer and uh, the product is installed. Mm. And uh, our, our sales guys were just allowed to set this product because they can go with the CD, uh, give it a demo, install it, get the license key, and they're up and running. Yep. And that's the kind of user experience uh, those days uh, Telesma was providing to customers. And, 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 and we used to really focus on that part. But then, uh, soon we realized that it's not enough to, to uh, have the increasing needs. So we soon uh, moved into a uh, enterprise offering. And that's where we are seeing a lot of these uh, non-functional or so-called reliability challenges, what we see. Uh, or rather, I've seen the reliability challenge for the first time. You mentioned before, uh, before we started this podcast that Talisma had built its own cloud product, right? or at least was trying to build uh, a cloud product. How did, how did, how did that go? Yeah, so <clears throat> I think Talisma still have a uh, cloud product, I think. Mm. Um, uh, this is a time when uh, the dot-com uh, dot bubble... Salesforce was already in the market by that time, right? I think yeah, there are a lot of guys that kind of time. I think Salesforce, Kana, uh, Pivotal, there are there many, uh, many such uh, uh, you know, customer vendors. But then uh, this was a time when uh, we run into uh, Citrix. I think those days Citrix had this uh, um, the, 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 the desktop virtualization product called uh, uh, Metaframe. Mm. Uh, now I don't know what it's called now. Uh, so we could really um, provide uh, a desktop virtualization uh, and uh, Talisma as a product on uh, this technology for uh, remote customers. Right. And that was our first crude way of uh, building uh, a SaaS offering for uh, our customers. Um, if you ask me, all the uh, uh, you know the modern day uh, designs were not there, but we just tried this uh, way of uh, delivering Talisma using Citrix MetaFrame, and we had a few customers surprisingly. Okay, and then from moving from Talisma to uh, eventually to Yahoo, how was how was the culture different between 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 Talisma and Yahoo? Uh, Talisman and Yahoo, I really didn't see much of a uh, cultural difference okay. uh, because we were uh, a pretty open culture. Um, one of the things which uh, probably shaped my, uh, my, me as a profession, uh, professional uh, from Talisman days were um, no hierarchy, flat hierarchy kind of an organization where you could uh, have access to the leadership, to the CEO. Mm. You can share an idea with the CEO himself yep. and, uh, and get his blessing directly. Mm. So that kind of gave us the opportunity to ask questions. Okay. And challenge things, and make better products, so on and so forth. The same. Did, uh, did production engineering in Yahoo was it also uh, at a much higher scale, and therefore did you also have the same access to, let's say, leadership in Yahoo? Oh yeah. So David Filo used to be the. Oh really? Okay. Uh, yeah. So he, uh, David Filo used to be the infrastructure head. So, so all uh, all of us used to get our uh, requirements reviewed by him. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, if there is any capacity required in one of the region, um, it, 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 you'll be running into Philo, and he's uh, as humble and as, uh, you know simple as a uh, founder or a, uh, tech, a technologist. And we could uh, uh, you know raise your questions. We could uh, um, have an argument with him, and if you are on the right side, he'll approve it. And uh, Yahoo had this. Uh, uh, culture of uh, hackathons mm. and hackathons used to be a time when uh, all of us participate and many Yahoo's products really came through those uh, uh, hackathons not just the Yahoo uh, products but our infrastructure uh, tools some of the Yahoo's proxies Yahoo's uh, uh, geo load balancers all these products were you know uh, done through hacker versions got it did you, did you do chaos engineering back then in Yahoo? Chaos engineering was not really coined the bike back then. So Yahoo, uh, Yahoo, Yahoo was uh, mostly a bare metal shop during those days. Virtualization was, was not really there. 
However, we had some um, element of this so-called service tiering that mm. we got. Okay. We had a tiering for various Yahoo's offerings, and uh, there used to be a periodic DR uh, certification. Okay. Right? We used to certify uh, our various services for its uh, recoverability in case of an issue. But Yahoo was by design built for multi-region. So it, there were very few services which would uh, uh, yeah, which would go down if there's an outage in a particular uh, region. Yahoo was all around the world, right? So it was by design, it was supposed to withstand one of uh, an outage in one of the region. And that's how the SRA team uh, those days would take care of the capacity planning for every service uh, would get uh, capacity in uh, ABC regions. And that's how the deployment used to happen. That's how the monitoring used to happen. That's how the changes used to happen. So it was uh, pretty much like a build that way. But still, we managed to get some of the services down globally. This was, I think, the time when you were uh, moving from bare metal to sort of fully cloud-driven organizations, Amazon, Intuit, uh, Flipkart, Atlassian. Uh, while we go into those companies, this is post-2014, right? How has reliability engineering changed since, um, since the 2000s? So if I kind of uh, think back, with, with, with the virtualization, uh, containerization, and now even the serverless architectures, you kind of removed a lot of context otherwise uh, a developer needed hmm. to get their code running. It also uh, reduced the overhead on the opera operations team. Right? Back then when you had all these bare metals, it was imperative that you, you need to have an army of operators to uh, install the operating system all the way to uh, keep it up and running. The adoption of virtualization. Um, the designs are, mo designs are moving mostly into design out for failures. Hmm. It doesn't matter, okay, one of my uh, VM goes down. It doesn't matter. Um, that kind of designs reduced the focus on the operating engineers or the operations team. And uh, the, when, when we were in Pi, my second startup, we were one of the first uh, beta customers of uh, uh, Amazon. Hmm. It was even before coin the EC2. Mm -hmm. It was called something else. And we were the beta customers of AWS. And uh, it was free for us, of obviously, with the beta testers. And we have seen some of the outages in uh, uh, AWS, which uh, wiped out our entire uh, uh, stack. Of course, we were also in beta, so it was not a big issue. But uh, that kind of you know, made us to engineer the entire stack, uh, or rather the composable uh, configurations where we can rebuild everything from scratch with a script. Yeah. We're using puppet kind of a orchestration technologies to do that. But definitely that kind of reduced the amount of physical labor hmm. uh, of ops engineers to literally go and install operating systems and all that. We, we kind of engineerize a lot of that. That is, that is where the thinking started okay, changing that. Can the developer run what they build? Right? Do we really need an uh, operations engineer? So many companies uh, since then kind of stopped investing into the traditional operations engineers. And uh, companies, or rather the startups, came up, I think, since 2005. Uh, or rather the time when AWS became okay, in a much more of the first choice of technology for people to use. Um, it was mostly utility on it. Mm. And, and then wondering, hey, what uh, these um, ops engineers do? Right? And still not, not much to talk about uh, SRE. And then the, the SRE term, terminology was kind of okay, coined by only in Google. Google yeah. Not many companies really uh, kind of okay, you know, uh, adopted it. The, the, the new set of products coming to the market, they were mostly the new design, right? There were less of monoliths. Hmm. Uh, we had this microservices and the service one architecture. It kind of helped uh, uh, people to own certain functionalities independently, and it can have its own reliability and recovery and so on and so forth. That's where 
uh, company has seen the problems, right? When you have the microservices for the proliferation, the dependencies, scalabilities, interoperabilities, and uh, all the elites. Mm. And, and, and then this entire SRE, um, the SRE uh, need just surfacing again. Right. So we got it off the operations engineer, uh, you know, operations engineering paradigm. Started to wonder how do we how do we make services reliable? Hmm. Uh, there's one thing that a lot of our um, listeners would want to hear about from you specifically, having set up having set up so many SRE teams and in, in many companies. At what stage do you set up an SRE practice, and how do you go about with it? See, mostly <coughs> when a, when a company reaches certain scale, uh, typically a startup, hmm. when, when 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 the startup started to see success and they have amassed a certain number of customers, uh, then reliability is uh, something uh, become a table stake for the company. That is when typically companies start thinking about uh, uh, reliability engineering or SREs and so on and so forth. In a, in, in, in a, in a startup world, which I work like the pie I was uh, talking about, we had, we, we, we built our first SRE team maybe uh, two years down the line. Okay. When we are going, you know, getting ready for our first uh, public beta, First public beta. Okay. Yeah, that is the time we were kind of you know, investing in SREs and start uh, in a growing. You mean you, you you had significant revenues at that time? No, we didn't have revenue at that point of time, but uh, it was a startup and uh, mostly running as a public beta. Okay. That it was uh, uh, you know more of a, you know shaping it up for the uh, potential acquiring companies to see the other reliable you know product for them to monetize at some point of time in their future. So would you would you advocate for SRE from day one if we are funded, let's say? If you're, a, if you're a company that's trying to build a high quality product, even in beta, do you incorporate SRE or, or start uh, building out the SRE from, uh, from day one? Or, or maybe if you, only if you reach a certain scale is when you should, you should start thinking about? The reliability, the, a reliability team may not be viable at that point of time, yeah. but the reliability concepts, the reliability <coughs> practices, always required. And uh, it may not be a full-fledged reliability team at that point of time, but there could be someone they could at least um, mentor them hmm. or supervise them to make sure that okay, some of the design goes in the right uh, direction. And if, if the startup found one of the founders well versed with the reliability practices, then I think that is good enough. Yep. Got it. And uh, how would you set up a so if let's say even if you reach at a certain stage, right? If you are a CTO or maybe a VP of engineering in a, in a company trying to set up an SRE practice, how would you go about hiring the right team? What do you look when you hire people uh, for reliability engineering? Yeah, it's a good question. So <clears throat> SREs uh, don't really come from the campus. Mm. You become an SRE after going through a certain amount of experience. Agree. Yeah. And uh, you were a developer some point of, some point of time, you had written code, you deployed it, you experienced what it means uh, to make mistakes and uh, yeah. be reliable. So if you want to influence an organization with the reliability practices, then SRE should be able to share uh, their experiences. Mm. And uh, most of the time, an SRE will be talking to an architect, or even a CTO, yeah. a, a, a freshman from the campus often probably won't be having all the context to do that. So we usually look for some of the seasoned SREs as a bootstrapping team. Hmm. Right. They come, they can they can look at what's going on and uh, assess the situation and make a proposal which can be related by the senior leadership of the organization. And then as we get into the execution, we start hiring the next layer of engineers who can uh, really build and implement the proposal we are actually making. Got it. 
and if let's say someone is a, is is an engineer maybe uh, a senior engineer but wants to specifically uh, get into the reliability role or residence residence engineering in general right within the same company how would they go about getting into that team yeah so uh, everyone is a uh, engineer and you start writing code i think coding is the uh, you know table stake right you bring and you do start doing designs so you can code you can design and um, you start to understand the systems especially how the distributed systems fail and uh, some of the design patterns there and uh, someone who starts showing inclination towards problems mm. troubleshooting okay and uh, looking at the problems at a larger level okay right beyond their uh, small scope of work that's when uh, we can start spotting some of the potential sres okay right and if they want to if they want to uh, build a career in uh, sre uh, we start uh, grooming them with some of the sre crafts we call them sre crafts this is this is internally uh, basically creating your sre correct it's so, that has yeah so we, in whichever organization we uh, find uh, talents or when we, even when we hire some lateral uh, hires we look at this uh, we 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 interview something called sre craft so in that we look for uh, what is their uh, how do they design for reliability even if they're not done that before from a very reliability point of view but at least what is their instincts about reliability okay so we look at some of the designs from a pure reliability point of view mm. right see are they looking at uh, rate limiting are they looking at failback can they so we look at some of these aspects in engineers and if they are really thinking about that then there's a good sign that they can be groomed into they good sir in terms of incident management of all the companies that you worked on uh, you worked in um, amazon apparently has a very advanced uh, iim process could you maybe talk a little bit about what amazon did right how did they end up with that kind of an incident yeah. process yeah I, i'm sure again anyone who follows amazon you must have uh, read about their 14 leadership principles mm. and one of one among them is vocally uh, self critical i think they encourage people to be vocally self critical and uh, an incident is a time you can really criticize uh, yourself vocally mm. and uh, um you know they had this uh, uh you know amazing process of uh, correction of errors i think you can google i think it's with there are plenty of articles there um and and, and the company as a culture they encourage uh, teams to write uh, this uh, rc is what they call it as correction of errors there i don't know what they call now but it used to be called uh, uh, in a correction of errors back then and it's uh, they had in fact built a uh, nice uh, you know application to track these rcs mm-hmm. and rcs always should come with a lot of data um and action items and uh, these rcs will be presented to the bu leader so as an engineer you get visibility to the engineering leader or engineering head of the bu imagine uh, you are presenting an rca uh, to a head of aws uh, engineering right so so uh, people really spend time uh, to analyze because you could get any kind of questions so um, Uh, yeah you, they do uh, uh, they do analysis of the problem pull out the data uh, have action items and these action items get tracked uh, with certain etas mm. and the etas are always followed up and if you're not uh, meeting the etas for action items then that again get bubbled up in your engineering excellence uh, dashboard so the entire ecosystem is built so that uh, you know no such incidents get escaped uh, or action items don't fall through the cracks right many companies we know we do rcs when the Uh, incident is in the seat of his moment we do rcs everyone feel good about the rcs but the action items usually take a back seat yep um, there are these uh, systems built in place so that the action items are followed through until it is implemented and that is uh, that is uh, one thing i liked about uh, amazon 
And the biggest incentive for the engineers to do these RCAs was that it used to be even considered in their um, uh, performance reviews and promotions that uh, an engineer would write, uh, or rather, uh, I would say write, I think, on uh, great RCAs, uh, really considered as, uh, uh, you know, it's a uh, additional point for their performance or their promotion packet. How would, uh, or how should engineering leaders in any organization look at empowering the SRE teams to drive change and drive change fast? It is not just SREs. SRE is an enabler, yeah. right? So this is another uh, misconception I would like to uh, touch upon. SREs alone can't bring in the change. Yeah. SREs are enablers, right? So the, the, the SRE, SRE, SRE is enabling or helping the engineering teams, the developers, to be reliable. So SREs bring in the wealth of experience from their past or the present roles, or working with the different teams in the same organization. They learn from the various problems. So, so they bring in all this experience back into uh, teams and help them to be reliable. Mm. It could be through adoption of certain platforms or doing certain kind of uh, uh, non-functional uh, testing. It could be, it could be multifolded, right? All the possible reliability patterns in front of uh, uh, these teams, they can be leveraged with the help of the SREs. Mm. And SREs, in, in, in some organizations, they create a lot of platforms that can be widely used. To give an example, uh, we have created chaos uh, platforms so that uh, all teams can automatically get a bunch of uh, chaos tests without even having to write a single code. Yep. So uh, all, uh, all they have to do is just use them and see how quickly they can recover. Right. So SREs are just to enable the teams. The, the empowerment has to come from top. Mm. Right. Uh, there has to be a drive for becoming reliable and uh, there has to be uh, data uh, bubbled up to the leadership team so that they can keep on investing into the reliability uh, initiatives. So SREs uh, enable, they bring data mm. that reflect upon how uh, the organization is doing and what is the cost of reliability to the organization. Got it. I was curious, um, is, the, is the reliability uh, leadership role tougher in an e-commerce setting versus a a SaaS setting. So SaaS has uniform traffic daily. In e-commerce, you're preparing for like a right. like a ten like x plus yeah. traffic, right? So you need to you need to plan for that well in advance. Is that is it doesn't make your job a little different? Well, well, well. You uh, as, as an SRE uh, team, uh, they always uh, looking for uh, keeping the site ready. Definitely preparing for a peak uh, business uh, day is different, right? Because you can't make a uh, error there. Uh, to give an example, uh, I used to work for a, a company where they used to do this uh, tax filing for US. And the last day of uh, tax filing, there will be huge traffic. And the US won't change the last uh, tax filing day. Yeah, they won't. Not there again. Right. Right. And if, I, if you're down, then uh, they'll probably go to another uh, vendor and uh, get a tax file and use it out. Here. On the other hand, uh, in an e-commerce site, uh, if you are uh, fighting on the price, and if you, even if you go down for uh, one hour, um, since the price was revealed, uh, customers come back mm. and they still buy. So what is the cost of reliability? Yeah. Right? So it all depends upon the cost of reliability. Right? It is much difficult to do um, reliability uh, for a uh, critical event because uh, it's also easy in a way because you have all the hands on the deck during that point of time. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, when you have some of these SaaS uh, products where you have some of these uh, uh, 24 by 7 operation and it's running 20, it, it running uh, 365 days of a, of a year. Um, but still, there are certain key events 
for example, if you have an accounting software as a SaaS product, yeah, the certain days of the year, there'll be like in a, uh, the, the month end there could be a month end processing, Correct. there could be pay, payroll processing, right? So all these things uh, can't uh, have, have an outage. Yeah, right. We don't want employees' salaries to be delayed, right? How did you how did you deal with? I mean, last couple of years you 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 had leadership positions. How did you deal with any unexpected outage that may have had a small business impact? How do you mentally deal with that? See, uh, I don't know. Can you use this again for shit happens, right? Shit happens. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, go, go for it. Shit does happen. <clears throat> uh, it's all about how do we respond to that, right? Everything fails. Mm. Right? I don't think we can build anything which is not going to fail. Um, but when you have a, a team, uh, typically. Uh, very seasoned in managing such big failures. How the experience? Uh, the difference is how do you deal that uh, failure? How do you recover? How do you manage customers? Many times customers are okay with the outage as long as they've been informed. Hmm. Right? Even customers are not really expecting you to be up all the time. So you know, it is not just about uh, um, you bring the system back up. But also, how do we communicate your stakeholders? Communicate with your customers. Uh, communicate, communicate with your, uh, uh, say, uh, CX team, your customer's care team, yep. right? So typically some of these things goes down, there could be a huge um, call volume coming into your uh, uh, call center, the picture will be going berserk, right? So you, you, you have various levers for you to kind of control uh, the things which are basically not in your control. Mm. While you're SRE focusing on building, bringing the system back up and running, um, right, you also have, you have to, can leverage many other um, uh, stakeholders within the organization to manage all that goes around, hmm. and that kind of you know, controls, um, you know, all the attention because no C position leaders want to see their system down, hmm. right? We need to keep communicating with the the, the, the leadership, communicating with customers. So there's a lot happening apart from fixing the real technical issue. So that part is the most taxing one, yeah, right. So you need to succinctly communicate the problem, the path to fix it, while you also uh, figure out how do we fix it and how do we recover it and what are the uh, repercussions or ramifications of this particular problem, right? Yeah. So uh, it, it requires experience. The more you uh, go through these uh, uh, situations and the more you handle it, uh, it comes in, you know, you, you become better. It's a, SRE seems to be one of the toughest engineering roles out there. It also it also shows in the pay, right? SRE engineers quite, or lucky engineers in general, uh, uh, have a higher pay than maybe other, other engineers uh, in the same team. Um, how do you, how do you, how do you manage that work-life balance? And especially if you're, let's say, in a fast-growing uh, company, and uh, you're constantly scaling, you're constantly trying to, you know, look at scenarios or possible scenarios of, of downtime. How do you sort of juggle that work-life balance in such a fast-paced environment, especially if you're a reliability engineer? The answer is SRE. Uh, so when we when we are not SREs, we are just service engineers or ops engineers in the past. Right? This was a daily affair. Mm. Right? The, the same systems keep failing. Um, you kind of wake up in the same day. We used to call the Groundhog Day movie, right? You wake up in the same day. I don't yes, know. Same, same, same thing happens over and over again. <laughs> over and over again, right? But SREs are meant to kind of reverse that trend. That's okay. why. That's why the, uh, the typically we attack it in you know three or four pillars. Uh, to me, the uh, I look at it in, in in four different uh, uh, quadrants. The first one is uh, you know having incident management. Um, really helps you to have a uh, one-stop shop for everything which is going wrong. Mm. So, it, so if SRs are trying to handle incident management and recovery and education, and all, this is not going to scale. So we usually keep a, a dedicated team. They are the place to go if there's an incident, uh, and they kind of orchestrate everything around it. And uh, um, SRs then focus on 
uh, making sure that the engineering team is building the right reliability capabilities into the product. Um, they've been uh, uh, testing all the required and non-functional attributes of the product, so on and so forth. And uh, finally, they also make sure that there is enough observability built into the uh, product so that when something goes wrong, we can quickly identify the issue and fix them so that you don't have to do witch hunting in terms of what's gone wrong. And the third part, the last part is um, uh, resilience. Right? So SRE is really focused on making sure that teams are adopting some amount of resilience cadence. Mm. We call it resilience experiments. Yep. And uh, keep on certifying themselves uh, you know, for, for some untoward event. Uh, so that when something goes wrong, they know how to recover it quickly. Mm. When I get a call in the middle of the night that something is down, um, we have a recipe in place to recover it. And then maybe the next day, you look at uh, what really happened. And uh, that's the only way we can sustain a team. Yep. Otherwise, people get burnt out. Got it. So we really uh, focus on, uh, on, on these aspects so that there is some amount of uh, separation of concerns within uh, the level engineering team itself. Reliability engineering teams also has a very big impact on the business, right? And business uh, projections as well. Uh, you mentioned that uh, in a lot of organizations, you have uh, annual business plans where if, let's say that the business teams are projecting uh, to do business maybe let's say 2x, 3x in the next year. What is the role of a reliability leader in terms of business planning? Okay. Usually the reliability engineers don't get into the business planning. Leader. The, the yeah. <coughs> um, yeah. The, the, the reliability leaders, they are part of the overall annual uh, planning and the sense coming in terms of where the business want to head the next year. And that get converted into the OKRs mm. of uh, every organization. And that also maps to um, how do we scale capacity and how much uh, budget we have, we have available for uh, uh, you know, what we want to do. And the business always want to do more. Yep. There has to be a um, discussion and trade-offs to maximize what the business want to achieve with the resources we have. Okay. And if there is a um, demand which we need to fulfill, that actually goes to the again to the leadership to get additional budgets. Because uh, as you know, no company can have a plan written on the 1st of January and stick to that uh, till the end of the year. Because you know, plans do change. Yeah. Uh, the business, uh, the market conditions will uh, ask you to uh, do things in a different way. So a lot of uh, uh, internal prioritization trade-offs uh, takes place to support some of these things. So that's where the, 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 the reliability leadership is constantly uh, involved with the, the engineering product leadership to make sure that uh, these changes are not impacting the overall uh, reliability, availability, performance, um, and we can provide capacity for some of those uh, 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 demands. Did you ever feel when, let's say the business wants to do more, and you came back and said that maybe we can do a percentage of that, we can't do as much, or we can't handle as much. Did you, did you ever get a feeling that maybe reliability or engineering has limitation, or maybe you're just holding the business back? Has there, has there been a um, you know, there are, it is very easy to say that we can do all the trade-offs, but there are situations where we, how to just do it. Hmm. I'm sure you know, COVID uh, taught us uh, you know, some hard lessons, right? So you, 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 can, you have to implement something for COVID response, or it's a flood situation, or there was a demonetization. Yeah. Uh, some companies, uh, Started this uh, buy now pay later, right? So do you do you get uh, uh, those constructs tested uh, overnight? No, mm -hmm. it's a leap of faith, okay. right? And you uh, start learning quickly and course correcting and uh, uh, continuously improving there. So there are a lot of planning goes in, in advance wherever we can, but be flexible enough to 
um, uh, you know, respond to such uh, interesting market dynamics. And then have the understanding of your systems to see uh, how can we pull off uh, uh, you know, such demands with the resources we have. And there's always, uh, in a large organization, there's always some surplus uh, capacity. You can always optimize. How did you present risk in the, in the operations? I mean, again, if, if leadership wants to, or if business wants to scale or go in a certain direction, uh, how do you measure the risk in the, in the, in the technology, the risk in operations in general? Um, see, there's there so many risks, right? From a reliability point of view, um, uh, the reliability point of view, the risk can be. Uh, I'll talk about most of the risk which coming in our way from that context, mm. right? Um, say, for example, preparing for a peak uh, business event, what is uh, uh, AWS uh, East or West Coast down, Correct. right? So those kind of uh, risks we write down, and we talk about the mitigation plans, and talk about the cost of those mistake mitigations. And then we decide, if that happens, what would be the uh, response? Right? Uh, if you want to keep active-active setup in two regions, yeah. it may have a cost. Versus you take four hours of outage and record manually. Mm. Right? Uh, so risk and uh, mitigations are usually done uh, with a lot of uh, uh, cost uh, in a context. Right, the, what, can the business afford such kind of a um, uh, risk? And if at all they can't afford, then what is the cost? And the cost has to be baked into the, the mitigation plan. Got it. How did you look at training the engineering team, not specifically the SRE, training the entire engineering team on the key business metrics that, that, that matter to the business while they're building whatever um, uh, services that they're building, right? I hope uh, you know every company. They're building services. They have their uh, uh, product matrices, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, it could be adoption. It could be uh, retention. It could be uh, monetization. Right? Without these metrics, I don't think any uh, companies these days build products. Uh, if not, I think that they should do it quickly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, any engineering team who's uh, on the right direction, they are aware of these metrics, and they should know how they're impacting these metrics. Okay. Uh, sometimes it could be directly, could be directly too. And uh, uh, you know, communicating that top down is an important uh, responsibility of leaders. They keep on reflecting on how are we doing on our key business metrics as an organization. You mentioned that key business metrics translate into product metrics as well, right? Right. Um, engineers need to internalize the the product metrics and the the, the minimum service availability that that is expected of all the, all of their services, right? Um, do engineers need to understand a lot more about how the business works, the finances, the, the, the how customers, the end users are actually interacting with the product? How exactly is the company making money? Do do you think engineers need to understand the business to take reliability seriously or the reliability of what they are building seriously? It is not just for the reliability aspects. I think it is important to know that what is the business they are building. Correct. To give an example, <clears throat> say you 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 have a uh, uh, you are building an application or, any, or, or a simple uh, e-commerce application and you have a bunch of listings, you show some uh, merchandise content, you show uh, recommendations. Um, you need to know where the revenue is coming from, right? And you need to know how, the, uh, how your service is powering those uh, metrics. So that level of mapping should happen from top to bottom. So the typically the way we do is that you have this uh, level zero metric, could be very few, hmm. then you have L1, L2s. So maybe as an engineer, I'll be working on the L2 metric. I'll be impacting L2 metric. But you should know that, or you should know that I'm impacting this L2 metric, that is in turn impacting the L1s and L0s. 
to give an example, um, uh, I am showing. Uh, uh, you know, let's say you are showing an advertisement in, in your in your application. I should be as as an engineer. I should know that how many ads are served and displayed, mm. right? And that metric impacts my revenue. Correct. So my L two is uh, the number of ads served is impacting my L zero L one, which is my revenue. So that level of clarity should be provided to engineers, and uh, we should be running your uh, weekly OPEX or uh, engineering excellence with such metrics in front of you. And uh, you can easily correlate that, okay, there was a uh, outage in service A, which is an ad serving service for five minutes, and corresponding there's a drop in uh, revenue. Yeah. So that kind of again gives a full picture to engineers, and then they know uh, why I should be uh, baking in reliability or resilience to my services so that uh, even if there is a small blip, uh, it doesn't really uh, impact my top matrices. We spoke a lot about leadership and um, what people and, uh, and processes. I think one thing that I want to chat with you about is uh, is tooling. Right? You you did a, you built a, a lot of tooling in house, and of course, uh, you brought in a lot of external tooling wherever you went. Um, where do you see the uh, how do you see the observability landscape evolving in the next ten years? Yeah, I think I want to ask you. Um, uh, you know, the observability as a term, which is kind of uh, uh, you know, coined, I think, last five, six years, right? It's become very popular. It's a popular. combination. It's a combination. Uh, and uh, we're all doing monitoring in the past. Exactly. Right? For monitoring, and everyone is all used to matrices. Uh, and uh, then came this, um, the microservices world, and we want to know what's happening between, right? Metrics alone don't uh, do things. People started creating more and more matrices, and uh, more and more uh, tags and uh, dimensions, which uh, causes cardinality uh, problems. And, uh, you know, we realized we need to separate uh, some of these things and bring in a new a new way of dealing with metrics, traces, logs, and so on and so forth. Uh, and the unified view, so-called observability, yeah. where we know why something is failing and what about what is happening. Uh, the challenge with uh, such um, uh, observability, observability tool in the current world is that observability is a data problem. Uh, the more data, most of the tools they are focused on collecting more and more uh, uh, the signals. Yeah. And uh, more signals, and if you look at the pricing of m many of these tools, they are uh, priced data, on the data, data, data ingestion, right? yeah. they price based on ingestion. And uh, if you look at it, you don't really look at all the data all the time. You should look at when something is wrong. Correct. So as you know that 80-20 uh, principle, right? Uh, there are uh, vital few and trivial many. Um, and, and that also causes two problems. One is um, the amount of data or signals coming. Tools can't really scale to some of the um, uh, some of the application, uh, you know, hierarchy, because they create a lot more data than the application can render, mm. right? Um, so I can see that there's a new trend which is happening. They're trying to reduce the amount of data or the signals mm. to get the insight what we really need. Right? Instead of uh, sending a lot of data to your storage and then you do all the processing to figure out what is wrong, you try to bring in more intelligence at the time, at the collection side. Okay. At your pipeline, and then uh, you know you store as less as possible at your uh, you know uh, storage side, and then you do run rules. And I think with the AI coming into a picture, um, I think soon that will also become much easier because um, uh, now you can look at uh, observability beyond this metrics, traces, and logs. Yeah, you can start looking at events too. Right. Uh, just by looking at uh, the, the number of uh, all the alerts you feed into the observability system, maybe in the future with uh, AI, 
uh, with enough past uh, information, hey, this is going to break in some time. Yeah. Right. So all the cell three alerts coming to your system can probably tell you that okay, you know, there is something going to improve, yeah. or you can predict that this is uh, slowing down. So uh, observability soon to become more of a um, event consuming system. Of course, metric is one of the signal or an event or uh, yeah, you know uh, logs and so forth, and uh, that helps the engineering teams to catch issues earlier, so that it happens. And also debug and take to the point where the problem is happening, mm. right? And which will help everyone to reduce the overall cost of owning these uh, observability systems. I don't want to name a company, but I'm sure you would have read this 65 million uh, bill yeah. somebody paid uh, to one of the uh, company recently, right? Yeah, <laughs> right? I think that doesn't make sense, right? I think uh, <laughs> something fundamentally wrong when somebody spends spending uh, 65 million dollars for observability. Uh, that is the biggest uh, you know, problem uh, with observability. Is this, this is way too much data being ingested without any significant? Significant, and uh, that's not a, uh, and these tools don't scale. They can't render. Uh, I've seen, I don't name any vendor, but uh, um, I, I see them struggling with the amount of data. They can't render. It doesn't scale with so many number of concurrent users. Right? There are, you know, working in a um, company which is uh, waiting for a peak business day, and when the day is just cut over, there is a lot of anxiety among developers to go and see how the metrics are looking. Yeah. There's going to be a, a sudden spike of uh, refresh happening to your metric dashboard by every single developer in the organization. Mm -hmm. Can you scale that kind of time? Right? Do you need such an extensive observability tool for that? Right. So uh, one, of the, one of the approach we, uh, one of the I take in that field is typically uh, have more of a purpose-driven tool. Don't have a single silver bullet to solve all the problems. Mm. Break them down. Right. You probably you can have a history dash dashboard. Which can tell you like at a, at a millisecond level what is going on, mm. and then maybe a one-minute uh, uh, latent uh, uh, garden signals coming in, and then maybe a uh, one to two-minute latent you know your logs coming in, or even a logs which are coming at a very low latency but it's not you know saved for a long time. So a lot of those uh, uh, you know purpose-built tiered tooling kind of works at scale in observability. Yeah, sing, anybody say, hey, this tool will solve everything for you? I can always uh, doubt their uh, claims. You, you, you doubt if they can. Claims, yeah. there, is, there is one thing that a lot of, um, maybe we, we did a little bit of research on what kind of questions are being asked in SRE forums, right? Um, is there a demand for SREs? What is the demand for SRE and do you think, uh, 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 do you think SRE as an occupation or SRE as a role is going to stay relevant? Absolutely, because uh, the true SRs are always uh, difficult to find. I think in the last two years, I've interviewed uh, hundreds of engineers, mm. but found only a handful of uh, SRs. Yeah. We find a lot of uh, uh, DevOps, so this is another challenge we uh, end up facing. We find a lot of ops engineers, we find DevOps engineers. SRs, the true SRs, uh, the difference between an SRE versus a ops engineer is uh, probably misunderstood by many in the industry. So the true SRE uh, is, uh, uh, is it a is it a difference between Holmes and Watson? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in fact, in fact, we had uh, uh, I had a slide deck in uh, uh, my in my previous roles. Uh, I start with this slide. Uh, you know, what is DevOps versus uh, uh, you know Ops versus SRE versus uh, Support Engineering? So to get everyone uh, everyone clear on what. Uh, uh, you know what it is, right? So that everyone is on the same uh, understanding. And one of the way of uh, uh, making everyone to understand what are the differences, focusing them on what do they focus on, the the the, the, the metric which are impacting. For example, if you look at a DevOps engineer, right? What is uh, what is the what is the metric they should be impacting, right? So as a DevOps engineer, I'm supposed to improve the dev deployment frequency. Yep. 
Right? If I'm doing my job right, then I'm improving that frequency in the company. Right? I can also look at okay, the failure rates, right? number of uh, deployment failures. Right? This are my metric I'm, I'm moving. Very clear. Mm. Right? As an SRE, I'm not really uh, focused on improving that metric. Of course, I'm leveraging my DevOps uh, tooling. But what I am moving is uh, my SLOs, SLIs, border signals, error budgets. So this is what SRE really uh, you know, tied upon, right? And uh, what about ops, ops engineer, the typical operation engineers we deal with, right? Mm -hmm. What do they, uh, what do they get pressure upon? They, they, they are there living and uh, dying for our times. They're always there to keep the system up and running. They will be measured on a PTD, ETRs, and so on and so forth. And something going down, they're just there to get it up and running. And uh, uh, as a product support engineer, because there are uh, uh, you know PSCs in some of these organizations, they take care of internal platforms and products. They 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 typically focus on the resolutions of uh, issues and uh, SLAs around that. So this way, we can have a clear um, understanding of what is SREs delivering in organization. With that, we can we also get into something called you know, the RASI model, hmm. right? Responsibility accountability model. Like what are they responsible for? What are they accountable for? And then we talk about how do we engage to an engineering team in their current stage of journey. And, and, and there we talk about something called sharing the pain. Mm. Because every team has a pain of reliability issues. And uh, SREs uh, don't shy away from you know, giving, uh, joining the pain, mm. uh, sharing the pain. Because uh, one of the things nobody likes is, uh, you know, I don't want you to be sounding as an advisor. Don't give me a gap. Right? I want you to, uh, you to improve something for me. Mm. So, uh, so then we work on an, an SRE engagement model with the team, given the situation they are in, and uh, you know, help come up with some of those stories which are going to be improving the reliability issues which they have in a systemic way. And uh, the SRE become part of their sprints. Should SREs speak to end users or customers? Do you think that be good for uh, the, the product or the service or the business in general? Yeah, so SRE's customer, who is SRE's customer? No. Developers. I'm, I'm saying, so, no, in this case, I'm, I'm saying, should SREs talk to the end users? So actually, okay. to actually see how they're using it, what actually matters to them. I mean, of course, PMs do that, customer success does that, support teams do that, they have that information, but should should the SRE teams directly talk to customers? Uh, it, so directly talking to a customer during an issue may not be the right thing to do, but then, uh, in, in a, to me, in general, every engineer should spend some time with the customers, yeah. right? Um, this is one of the practice we used to do as a startup. Um, we used to put all our uh, developers with the support engineers for a week. Mm. So they know, they get a first-hand experience of uh, how the customers uh, are, are, are responding to the problem, you know, what they're facing and how the support engineer is uh, responding to it. Yeah. And uh, with one week in the support roles, they'll come back with a lot of improvements to the product. Okay. And I've seen, uh, you know, that paying huge dividends. And personally speaking, uh, a lot of my customer empathy developed when I was uh, I was working as a uh, support engineer, mm -hmm. right? And then I was uh, a, a product implementation specialist, uh, and uh, those interactions really uh, opened up uh, a lot of uh, you know possibilities which I never thought about. Mm. It helps you to improve your empathy towards customers, yeah. and that comes back into your designs, right? Uh, when just just think about, right? You have a um, you have SaaS solution, and you have a uh, admin at the customer end, and uh, something goes wrong, and uh, you know he he or she has no idea right, what's happening, and uh, they have to pick up the phone and call somebody or make a support request. 
Um, but if you know what that particular end uh, user is going through, then probably you will bake in a lot of uh, messaging or uh, could be some simple banner going to the admin saying that there's something wrong. As simple as simple as that. So there has to be a, there has to be some amount of interaction with customers who simply follow the customer. And many uh, many companies do that. Uh, um, you know, they call it as follow the customers. Do you think uh, when you look at now, India specifically, right? Product companies, SaaS companies, or any engineering team for that matter. Do we? Do you, do you see that we, our engineers don't really speak to customers? Do they they lack a certain bit of empathy. And how do we? How do Indian tech companies build a good culture of reliability internally? I think we do a lot, right? If I look at some of the best the uh, breed product in India, I can see that they're really uh, uh, really thinking about uh, the customer. Uh, uh, empathy, right? So, to give an example, I see some of these uh, food delivery apps can uh, giving a, a rain alert in the application. Yeah. Right. Um, it is not really required, but uh, uh, you know, it basically sets everyone's nerve uh, cool. Right. I'm sure that they must be uh, riding with one of the uh, delivery boy in a rain, yeah. so they know what it really means, right? Um, so, that kind of a uh, follow the customer is a great um, vehicle for bringing in customer empathy. And I think uh, doing it at any company, not doing it, I think encourage them to you know follow the customers, right? Uh, when I, I remember Flipkart, uh, I remember uh, founders uh, do delivery on a big billion day. Yeah, I'm sure you've seen the newspapers, right? So they know what it means to go park a small scooter in a small gully and find out the address, which you know you think. Uh, uh, it is very easy to find. Mm -hmm. Not the not the, not the case in India, right? Even I think DoorDash, right? DoorDash has this culture where uh, their engineers are sent to the they, they do delivery work every every once in a while as well. Mm. Swiggy probably, I mean, Swiggy founders used to deliver. I remember. The matter also does that, yeah. So that is the you know, follow the customer is a very common practice now, uh, and uh, I've seen certain companies they do it as a uh, innovation uh, vehicle to just go sit to the customer for a day and observe what they're doing. And that probably gives them again more ideas to uh, add a new feature or innovate something. And many products come out of that uh, interaction, especially in the space of uh, uh, small and medium businesses. Uh, like just go, just go look at look at a um, bakery nearby. And they are doing uh, how how do they do the accounting, mm. right? What what can automation they can do? You get a lot of ideas on how to build a product. So similarly, uh, you know, if you are building a monitoring product, you should uh, do some of these interactions to see what, what they go through, right? When 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 um, when incident happens, right? What really uh, helps them, right? Uh, you know, to give an example, like okay, a simple act feature, right? In your uh, uh, push notification, saves a lot of pain for a uh, onboard engineer. Yeah, yeah. including ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we use it ourselves. Right. How do you project reliability to your customers? I mean, I, I feel that. Uh, Sorry, so a reliability team pretty much sort of works in the shadows, right? How do you customers know that you don't you haven't gone down, but how do you as a company project that you're a very solid, reliable engineering team? Have you thought about that? I mean, uh, I mean, you 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 do, you do do a lot of that when you're posting your your JDs, right, for your team. But how do you project that you know what we are reliable and this is this is the proof or this is how you know that we are reliable? Yeah, I think yeah, I don't think any company really talk about we are reliable, but they talk about uh, that through some of the SLAs they commit with the customers, yeah, right. And also being transparent about uh, what's happening. So recently, I was uh, talking to somebody, and they're talking about this watermelon uh, effect. Mm. So you show the watermelon from outside looks like green, and inside is all red, right? <laughs> or, or the reverse way, right? You uh, look everything inside is everything is red, but outside is green. So it's it, that way. The customers, uh, you know, they 
a lot of our customers knows that these are internet, uh, there's going to be failures, there's going to be issues, but uh, the transparency is what they, uh, they, they, they look at. So communication is uh, communicating or all communicating uh, through email, verbally, and also smart communication through all the other means we have, like, like push push notifications or uh, slide bubbles, and all that you do in our UX. Uh, in a really, uh, in a in a really save you. I'll give you another example. Uh, one of the uh, in a product I worked on, they were into uh, uh, tax filing, uh, and uh, on the last day of tax filing, there was a f uh, increase in uh, payment failure. And uh, without payment, uh, if you allow the customer to file, then uh, you know you lose a lot of money, right? And the flow was that okay, you 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 first authenticate the payment at the beginning, and uh, and then continue with the filing. But then uh, we realized that uh, nobody, f this tax filing is a slightly time consuming process. It may take like you know, 10, 15, 20, maybe 30 minutes, one hour, most of the cases. So even if the payment authentication fails at the beginning, you can retry the time you submit it. Yeah. By the time, hopefully, the, uh, the gateway would have recovered. Yeah. So this, uh, you know, the, the, the resilience you build at the uh, uh, you know, UX level. Right, really, uh, you know, pays a, uh, a huge dividend. And customers also like, yeah, this, uh, you know, this company had a problem, but he's not blocking me. He is allowing me to uh, continue. Uh, continue right? So this is the kind of, you know, the, the, the user experience we can provide. So reliability often looked at as a back-end thing. Yeah. But reliability is also at the front end. In fact, the customers see your reliability from the front end. Exactly. So the UX plays a huge role in, uh, uh, you know, the customer Project experience, reliability, and uh, you must design out the uh, UX in a way that uh, there are there are very few uh, failed customer interactions. And even if there's a failure, there is a plan B. Mm. So can we can can we route the um, flow into another page or another uh, screen uh, without breaking their uh, you know objective, and then come back to the original intent you had with them, mm. right? And uh, so th th this is something you can have, you know, uh, uh, this is something you should uh, think about as you build your UX. So I think uh, towards the end, um, uh, our, our, our listeners would love to learn or love to be here a little, a uh, couple of more room stories from you. You can you can pick and choose. You, of course, you don't need to name names, but some yeah. of your best war room moments. Yeah, I think war room stories are always uh, um, fun when you look when you, when you look back now. If you ask me to pick one. Uh, I wouldn't really uh, name anyone. Um, one of them I just mentioned about uh, uh, this this uh, payment gateway failures are very common in any of this uh, yeah. last minute, uh, right? Um, uh, one of the incidents was that uh, uh, one of the peak business uh, day, the sale opening, um, we were overwhelmed with the number of uh, requests. So we so we, we we probably got forex of our uh, originally forecasted. Uh, and, and you had over-provisioned as well. We had over-provisioned 2x. We over-provisioned 2x, but we got almost 4x. 4X. <laughs> and uh, what do you do? Like, sometimes systems will surprise you that it actually can go to 3x. <laughs> but, then, uh, it, but then that kind of creates uh, unknown repercussion to some other systems. Correct. Right? It is not really safe to uh, allow such uh, incidental reliability for a long time. Mm. Right? You should have a controllable reliability. Right? Correct. Uh, so, um, we, we luckily we had uh, practiced a lot of, uh, um, and, and, and this is sale opening, and we have the whole war room looking at, and suddenly uh, we see zero orders coming in, um, uh, you know, and there's panic, yeah, right. Uh, and especially when you have a lot of people watching you, then uh, so many ideas going, but then in a corner, the core beam sits and uh, start pulling the levers, right. So shut this down, yeah, and uh, divert traffic to. Uh, 
you know another uh, area where they can still uh, have some uh, experience about what is going on yeah. so so the overall the the, the, the ux uh, the ux design and using all the levers where we could use to you know, reduce the pressure to certain areas which was causing this uh, pain uh, and then we drain that traffic and then the things are back coming back uh, uh, you know properly um, if you want to, uh, you know, the, the biggest learning there was that uh, we had practiced everything, mm. right? It's a good story, mm. right? So we had practiced everything, uh, what could go wrong, but we never expected this forex traffic coming in. We knew that, okay, something in a steady state, something goes wrong, how to recover. But we never uh, expected to have this uh, forex traffic coming in. And uh, um, of course, there's interruption for 30 minutes. Yep. But then. Uh, but how come business did not forecast 4x? Business was forecasting x, you had provision for 2x. And forex showed up. How, how come business? How did business miss that? See, that is uh, uh, that, that that is something again. We should be all be humble enough to um, you know understand the user behavior, right? Yeah. Um, you, know, you know, our assumptions will totally go, go wrong, like right? mm. the Murphy's law. Yeah. Right. So assumptions totally go wrong. Customers uh, would want something else. Right. When in, in, a, in a country like us, where we are very price sensitive, and uh, they see that something is available at a uh, they just right? show up. Yeah. They just, just show up. So you, you can't help it. I'm sure you uh, we see that in uh, many places. So, um, you know, your assumptions will really, really go Maybe. wrong <clears throat> and be ready to be proven wrong every time when you run some of these things. And sometimes it will surprise you pleasantly. Yeah. And sometimes it will be unpleasant and uh, be bold enough to be ready with your levers to control uh, that situation. I mean, forex or expected traffic is a good problem to have. Yeah, so but it doesn't help, right? Yeah. So if you don't have, uh, so, so this, is, this is something which uh, we should all remember that uh, um, it's, it's all about uh, delivering something reliably than uh, delivering, you know, Everything unreliably, right? Something you reliable, uh, something you deliver reliably. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, there is no uh, infinite capacity with anyone. How Just do you, how do you uh, celebrate a resolution of a major incident? How do you unwind? Okay, maybe I should take an, take an, take an example of such uh, an incident, right? So, I always talk about this in many uh, places that uh, uh, you know during my. Um, Yahoo days, uh, uh, I used, my, my team used to manage Yahoo's login and uh, the deployments used to happen from uh, India because that's an uh, off-peak time um, and we brought down Yahoo's login worldwide. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anybody who worked on uh, uh, ELBs know that you, know, you take a you know, mission off the rotation and then you deploy and then you deploy and you deploy but you never, you forgot to bring it back. <laughs> so we are down for uh, uh, I think 15 20 minutes worldwide, Yahoo login was down. Um, and Did it make it to I don't remember that, it's been a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, uh, it was, I think, that point of time because Yahoo was still popular that point of time. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, uh, it was a pleasant thing for me because uh, it had gone to the CEO. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, the RCA written and it was reviewed by every single person. And uh, one one thing about uh, I think RCA is that when you are at the when you are at the responsibility side of an uh, incident, you get a lot of motherhood statements. Yep, right. You should do that, and you should do this, right? And one of the one of the recommendation or one of the requirement came from one of the leader was that uh, uh, we need the revenue impact. Mm. How much revenue was impacted uh, because of the outage? Mm. And I was like, you know, very scared. Like yeah. Yahoo's such company, you know, millions get impacted because of outage. Yeah. So I was chasing one of the analytics team guy to forget the number. So they take time. And mm. those days, we didn't have all these, like, you know, yep. uh, quick analytics kind of thing. So uh, I raised the ticket and I waited for my luck for mm. one week. And I received a mail after a week uh, saying that, uh, you know, during this time, 
we had a slight increase in revenue. Hmm? It's like, what? <laughs> okay. Okay. Apparently, what happened is when Yahoo's login is down, we had a redirect to the homepage. Okay. And homepage, we show more ads. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that is one funny story, uh, uh, you know, about uh, incidents and the revenue impact. Um, but yeah, you can't deploy such uh, levers to increase your revenue. But uh, sometimes, okay, no, uh, this incidents really uh, surprise you in a, a different way. Do you, um, do you do you switch off after a major incident? How do you how do you get back to your to your normal state of mind? Um, so I think you talked about this uh, work life balance at some point of time, right? Yeah. This is one thing I um, you know in my side of work life balance is I want to switch off uh, when I want to switch off. So to me the work life balance is uh, I should be able to make myself available for work when the work needs me, and I should be able to uh, make myself available to only to my life when. Uh, <clears throat> that needs me for two weeks. I should be able to take two weeks leave if I need and switch off. So I kind of build my teams in a way I can be um, switched off for uh, two weeks okay. if need be. Okay. The same way I prepare my family that uh, this is the uh, peak season or some war room or a uh, you know, festival sale going on. So I won't be available for all the daily chores at home. Okay. Right. So that, that way it uh, uh, works for everyone. Because setting expectations is very important with family too. Because a lot of sacrifice because you work in the middle of the night. Um, and then, of course, you uh, you, you do party. We, we we do we party hard. Yeah. We always believe in uh, you know work hard and party harder. <laughs> and I think that is a time we kind of uh, that the true uh, RCAs and the true feedback comes when you write the mind outside office. So that's another important aspect of bonding teams, building um, the camaraderie, um, and also uh, hearing the real feedback from your team. How do they feel in a very candid environment? So which is very important. How do you? How do you build that? So, as, as, a, as a as a as a manager, as a leader, how do you build that security cover for your team to uh, work effect effectively during a major incident and not feel like they're under pressure or they'd be blamed for something? How do you build that trust? It, it may sound very cliche, but I think you would have heard this uh, Abdul Kalam story, right? That uh, you always represent, uh, you always be there in the front when there's a problem, mm. right? You don't uh, put your engineers in front when something is wrong. So you own all the failures mm. and make them celebrate. Okay, now the uh, wins. Do you celebrate failures? Of course, of course. So RCA is a time when we celebrate failures. Okay. That we learned a lot. Okay. Right. If you have not made a mistake, then you don't learn. So uh, one of my interview questions to many of the SREs, if you if you are interviewed by me, then I would ask this question to you. Tell me one mess up you made in your career. Okay. <laughs> if you have not done uh, any, any such mess up, then uh, probably you didn't really try it enough. Yeah. Somebody is repeating the same mistake again and again. Something wrong. Yeah. But um, you know, uh, we have to give a cover for failures. Encourage uh, trying things, but fail fast. Right. Mm -hmm. So, if somebody fails, then don't really justify the failure, right? Often, you know, walkily uh, self-critical and uh, encourage a questioning culture in the team. Mm -hmm. So, one of the things I encourage my team is that you can ask any question. You can question anything. So, be when, when you bring in a design to the table, be ready to get questioned. Don't expect any uh, soft questions there. <laughs> and that kind of, you know, over a period of time, team kind of develop that uh, uh, culture of uh, taking questions and always, uh, you know, enjoy those questioning so that they can solidify their designs, their thought process, uh, all that. And uh, yeah, you know, in, in, in some new companies, uh, the culture is not there. We have it up again a challenge, but then uh, we uh, tend to uh, improve that over a period of time by uh, demonstrating the value of uh, asking questions and uh, uh, being uncomfortable with questions and then become comfortable with the questions. Awesome.
So thank you, Manoj, for uh, making time for us today. There are, I know, there's so many, there are hundreds of stories that we can can talk about in future, uh, and hopefully, uh, as the as the audience grows, they'll also have a lot more questions around reliability engineering, around leadership in general, and we'd love to have you sometime uh, in the future as well. Sure, uh, sure. Thank you for having me here. It is a pleasure uh, talking to you and the Senduri team. I know these stories are uh, never-ending stories. We can continue talking for maybe a day or maybe multiple days. So uh, <laughs> I think we'll definitely uh, catch up some other moment and continue this discussion. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah.